From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. The politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution, and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise, and the common good. Maybe we should rename 2019 pre-2020. That certainly seems to be some of the effect of Tuesday night's State of the Union which is less, it seems, a state of the affairs of the country and more a state of its politics. Joining me on Political Theater today is Simone Pathé, our senior politics writer, and we're going to discuss a little bit more of the 2020 news that seems to just keep rolling right out of the 2019 <laughs> State of the Union. Simone, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Good good to have you. Um, yeah, one of the things that I, you know, it, it has been di- almost difficult to plan uh, even uh, uh, an evergreen podcast, because there is just so much news uh, that that happens, particularly on the political front. Uh, last week, uh, Nathan Gonzalez and I talked about how we were looking forward to seeing how the, what the reactions were going to be like from several of the 2020 presidential candidates on the Democratic Party. The the news wasn't really even so much from them and in, inside the chamber, although we we saw some some eye rolling and some fundraising uh, letters and so forth, but. The news is, you know, coming out later on this week when Amy Klobuchar says that she'll have an announcement this weekend in Minnesota and also in the House and Senate front. So let's talk a little bit of the just the immediate after effect of the State of the Union, and we'll talk about 2020 and it's going in. First, the um, the president, uh, Nathan, and I talked about this a little bit after the speech, but I'd love to hear your you know thoughts about it, which is, did the president gain or lose any supporters, do you think, uh, from from what he said in in the State of the Union? I don't think so. And this gets, I think, to maybe what your broader point is that few people actually pay attention to the substance of the speech of the State of the Union these days. It's largely just a spectacle, right? right? It's a theatrical spectacle. And so everyone at home is watching there to see the reactions on people's faces the way we are here in Washington, right. looking to see, you know, who's going to stand up, who rolls their eyes, who's going to shout you lie. All of that stuff that is, frankly, much more captivating than the theatrical parts the of the theatrical politics. part, <laughs> rather right than listening to a president monologue for an hour or an hour and a half. What, one of the things that struck me was that the the previous, well, the longest State of the Union ever was Bill Clinton's in in two thousand, and it clocked in at an hour and twenty nine minutes. And at the, toward the end of the speech on Tuesday night, we were wondering, is is Trump going to break <laughs> it? I mean, is is that going to be the takeaway from the State of the Union that was the longest ever? And he fell a little bit short. I think his was at 82 minutes. And the several of the people who stopped by the roll call broadcast uh, area at Emancipation Hall, the, in their three, um, three, three words to describe State of the Union, had some sort of saying like it was kind of long. Or, you know, the Democrats tend to say it was boring. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the Republicans were, were saying things like thoughtful and, and, and so forth. But it occurred to me that Clinton's, when you look at the n- number of words, Clinton's hour and 29-minute speech was like over 9,000 words. Trump's 82-minute uh, speech was only a little over 5,000 words. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, so he was wow. speaking very slowly, huh. and there was a lot of applause lines, and we even had a you know somebody get happy birthday sung to them. Mm-hmm. So really, it f- did feel more theatrical and, and political in, in, this, in this vein, uh, I, I, I think. <laughs> Yeah, and especially in today's day and age where you can instantly capitalize on these moments via social media. You know, you had the campaigns of Kirsten Gillibrand um, and Kamala Harris churning out these memes and videos that they were tweeting for fundraising purposes during the speech. 
Which immediately got people to saying, like, can you do that in the in the chamber? And I mean, there are different ethics rules in the House and Senate. Nothing is probably going to come out of that. Like you said, it's like the substance of the State of the Union. I mean, how many people actually care whether what Trump was saying about like the employment numbers is is like exactly matched up, considering that employment numbers get rounded up or down on a monthly basis? Right, <laughs> so, right. So. And especially for anyone looking to see, uh, you know, policy direction from Trump, we know from this administration that what he says one night might not necessarily be what happens the next day. The next day. So I don't think you had anyone putting too much stock in any one announcement. So, so some of the people who we're looking at, I mean, beyond the, the presidential candidates, we'll get the, to the, to them in a little bit, you know, just to sort of set up what's coming in the, in the, in the next week or in, in months ahead. But from a, a standpoint of the of the races that are, we're really already zeroing in on, Gary Peters, who is a uh, Democrat in his first term in the Senate from Michigan, he won in 2014. He is up. He's one of only two Democrats who is running in a state uh, that Donald Trump won in in 2016. So he is potentially vulnerable. Uh, I mean, certainly somebody that we want to keep an eye on. Uh, and. At the at one of the parts of the speech where the president was discussing tariffs and and trade barriers and NAFTA and so forth, there were times when Gary Peters stood up and applauded, which I think is just this kind of fascinating sort of nutshell of the pressures that somebody like that is under. Obviously, he's not leaving the Democratic Party anytime soon, uh, or it would be news if he is contemplating that. It doesn't <laughs> sound like he is, uh, but but also that he needs to. He, he needs to sort of value what his constituents say, and a lot of them connect to Donald Trump. I mean, not Donald Trump won Michigan narrowly, but one of the reasons that he was able to do so is he would capitalize on people's fears about losing their jobs and their jobs being shipped overseas. Absolutely. Um, as you said, Trump narrowly won the state, but even Democrats will acknowledge that he tapped into something real, some real anxiety there. Um, of course, you can make the argument that Hillary Clinton had she paid more attention to the state, maybe Democrats would have won it at the national level. That's something that I think, you know, they're not <laughs> eager to forget that, right. you know, another candidate will, will have to really make sure that they don't forget Michigan. But Peters is in a little bit of a tough spot, not nearly as tough a spot as, let's say, Doug Jones, who's the other Democratic senator who is running for reelection in a Trump state. These are Vastly different categories. Michigan is not Alabama. Um, But he will be a top Republican target. We've seen that in some of the messaging already. Republicans I've spoken to from folks here in Washington to out in the state think that he's got some vulnerabilities that they can exploit. They're going to be looking to try to point out where he has differed with the president on some of these more populist issues, maybe not some of the social issues, maybe not immigration, um, because that could alienate some of um, more progressive, let's say, moderate Republican voters in the state or independents even. But on some of these economic issues, um, I think Peters is seeing that it behooves him to at least ally with president in a theatrical way. Right, right. And and, and sort of stand when when there's the applause line on, right. on NAFTA. I mean, another person uh, who is contemplating a presidential run, I mean, he, he just won re-election fairly handily, um, is Sherrod Brown from neighboring Ohio. Uh, mm-hmm. And Sherrod Brown has been traveling on the on on what he calls the dignity of work tour, mm-hmm. uh, which seems like it could easily morph into a presidential campaign if uh, if he wanted to do so. 
and uh, and and Brown has this sort of shaggy dog, like I'm with the working man kind of persona. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm not disparaging it. I'm saying that's just who he he is. Mm-hmm. You know, he he seems to delight in looking kind of slumped over. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and but he he also has been. He has said when the president has has talked about like getting tough on China, he's one of the people who says absolutely we should get tough tough on China. Uh, so I mean, how much of a I mean, this and this is something that even Brown isn't alone on. Chuck Schumer, the the minority leader in the Senate, has talked about this, as has Bernie Sanders, uh, who is another potential 2020 candidate and somebody who sort of sat there stone faced, you know, (laughs) through a lot of the uh, barbs that could have been interpreted as as thrown at him about socialism and, and things like that. How tough is it for Democrats who are trying to capitalize on on populism and saying that they're with working people if they if they don't sort of give credence to what the president is tapping into, and particularly in these states that they have to win if they want to win the presidency? That's a really good question. Um, and I think 2018 provided a little bit of a preview for that. It was the first time on a major issue like trade where we saw that there was actually more in common between the president and Democrats than rank and file Republicans. You know, this was a an issue in which Trump really did not fit in the conservative Chamber of Commerce pro-business Republican box. And he was much more allied with the likes of Brown, who wrote the book against you know, a lot of these trade deals. If you look at, at the midterms we just had, it, it didn't work out so well for Democrats. Look at someone like Joe Donnelly, who is, you know, very much sort of man of the people, um, working class, you know, drove around the state, also looking kind of frumpled in an RV, talking about economic populism. He ended up losing by like 10 points. To a rich guy. To a super rich guy <laughs> who funded his own campaign to the tune of, I don't know, six or seven million dollars, I think, maybe even more. Um and and he won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it is the, the 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 weird sort of dichotomies that show up. I mean that like I mean Republicans are are increasingly I believe seeing that this is possibly their way to maintain a, a significant foothold in politics are tapping into working class anxieties. But the people who they're electing, uh, at least at the Senate level, uh, mm-hmm. are and at the presidential level are are. Fabulously wealthy. Uh, Mike Braun, Rick Scott is another one of the, the yes. freshman senator from Florida who uh, is a, uh, a former governor of Florida. I mean, he spent something like fifty million dollars of his own money on uh, on his Senate campaign after spending roughly the same amount on his previous two gubernatorial campaigns. Right. I mean, that's more than walking around money. Right. And of course, this is not a new phenomenon in politics. Political scientists have debated for decades about why people vote against their economic interests or at least vote people into power who you would think do not understand their plight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it also speaks to just the, the nationalization of politics. Like a lot of these races that we just alluded to, Indiana and Florida, they kind of just followed the national trend, right? Mm-hmm. And so they might have looked more competitive. But the last couple of weeks when Trump was talking about the caravan, talking about immigration and bringing up these sort of security threats um, in some of these more red states, not in the, the suburban house races, of course, we saw the opposite effect there. But in some of these red states that Trump did carry in 2016, that was enough to shift things in the Republican direction. And the president is, I mean, he got the most sort of eye rolls from Democrats. And and even there were some moans uh, Mm -hmm. when when he mentioned another caravan and securing the border. He is going down to El Paso on Monday for a a political rally, a a Make America Great rally. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it was interesting. He mentioned El Paso as like, this is a place where they built a wall and violent crime went down. The sheriff of El Paso uh, responded to to this uh, earlier today, saying, "You know, here here are the facts. I mean, this is not we were not a particularly." 
really violent place before. We'd had walls, you know, or fences in different parts of the year. So the wall didn't really markedly change much of anything. But come on down anyway. Uh, and and it, El Paso just happens to be where <laughs> Beto O'Rourke, the former congressman, uh, Democrat from Texas, who gave Ted Cruz a, a tough run uh, but came up short for the Senate last year, is from. And he is potentially, uh, certainly if Oprah Winfrey has her way, uh, <laughs> is is declaring his bid for the can- for the presidency fairly soon. Uh, what do you think yeah. of that sort of timing? Funny coincidence, <laughs> isn't it? Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess, you know, the, I mean, may- maybe the all the... You know, airstrips were were you know sort of uh, busy that day. No galas <laughs> or uh, you know San Diego or <laughs> Douglas and you know any of those sort of ports of entry are along. Uh, but I mean, El Paso, just this maze of uh, as far as a port of entry, it'll be mm-hmm. an interesting contrast depending on where they set up. Um, and I, I would love to know what's going through the the O'Rourke people's minds right now. Yeah, I would expect them. I mean, not knowing this for sure, but to try to capitalize on that. I think, frankly, both of them will. They'll probably play off each other in a way that benefits both of them in terms of revving up their bases. I could see O'Rourke, as he's done before, I mean, you know, just sort of walk across the border to to get, like, lunch or something like that and talk to some of his friends in Spanish and then say, you know, say, like, hey, you should come over over here for a burrito uh, or a taco, Mr. President, uh, which probably will not happen. Uh, But, you know, dare to dream, right? Um, getting back a little bit to the to the speech last night, another another sort of moment I thought was you know just sort of indicative of like okay what's going on here uh, let, let's break this down is that Joe Manchin uh, the the uh, Democratic senator from West Virginia he just won a pretty tough race uh, he was blessed with a remarkably weak opponent uh, mm-hmm. in the general election and he still barely won uh, in in West Virginia which has become a very reliably Republican state uh, at, at the national level certainly and now increasingly at the state level he um, he is past the point probably where he would be thinking about running for president. Uh, certainly would have a difficult time getting through a Democratic primary yes. uh, on because of his uh, anti-abortion stances and, and pro-fossil fuel, particularly pro-coal uses. Mm-hmm. He he stood up and applauded, you know, quite quite you know with a lot of sort of flourish a couple of times once was when the president uh, mentioned that uh, the, the United States is a net exporter of, of energy of oil and gas which we actually have been I think for a while I, I, I remember the hmm. I remember Bush and Obama both talking about this so they're, we are on our way or there um, but but he was you know big on that and he's the you know ranking member on energy and natural resources committee now uh, and then also when, when the president was decrying abortions and late-term abortions, he stood up. To defend the dignity of every person, I am asking Congress to pass legislation to prohibit the late-term abortion of children who can feel pain in the mother's and I hadn't thought about this, that I'm like, well, okay, imagine, let's say he just believes this, but what or what's the political reason? Who told me something that I did not know. Yeah, so he had a reason to stand up. Word on the street is that he might be interested in running for governor again in West Virginia. He was already a two-term governor before he um, came to the Senate. Right. Um, so, yeah, he has a reason to show folks that, hey, I'm going to be strong against abortion. I'm going to be strong for coal. He also, just to further please conservatives, made a point of shaking Brett Kavanaugh's hand both before and after the speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and the president's. And yeah. the president's, mm-hmm. yes. Um, he was the only Democrat in the Senate to vote for confirming Kavanaugh. You know, that's just another point of pride if you're trying to win over a Republican electorate. West Virginia seems to still have a lot of Democrats, but the, why is it, if it's so Republican, why doesn't somebody like uh, 
Manchin become a Republican. Theoretically, if he did run for governor, he would be running against Jim Justice, who was a Republican, who became a Democrat, who went back to being a Republican. <laughs> Perhaps uh, the political affiliations are, are a little fluid there. They're absolutely fluid. And, you know, I could have spoken more concisely when I said a Republican elector in West Virginia. It's really a Democratic electorate that votes Republican. It, it may even be the, the, the future of a, of, of a lot of politics because the, the certainly the economics of it are very liberal, even if the cultural aspect is very yes. conservative on abortion and guns and, and things like this. Uh, let's talk about Amy Klobuchar. The State of the Union body wasn't even cold yet uh, before uh, Amy <laughs> Klobuchar uh, said that say. yeah she had a big uh, she was going to make a big announcement on Boom Island uh, <laughs> in in Minnesota on Sunday. What could that possibly be about? Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of weird. A lot of people are making announcements. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our our friend, uh, we, we we jest. Our, our our friend and former colleague Alex Rorty, who's now at McClatchy, uh, you know, said not to get a hold of myself, get ahead of myself. But I'm going to go ahead and get ahead of myself. <laughs> Klobuchar may have an actual opening because she is from the Midwest. I mean, mm-hmm. there are um, there are a number of women running. There are a number of men <laughs> running uh, from the Midwest that are more more populous. People like Brown. She would be the only woman running from the Midwest. And this sounds silly to parse it, but like when the first contest is in Iowa, mm-hmm. the, I mean, it's all about this kind of momentum. And, and who, who knows? And who would have thought that Trump would have won the Republican nomination in 2014 and 2015? Yeah, yeah. I think she, you know, the skeptics might say that she has um, a little bit less charisma than maybe, say, a Kamala Harris or even a Kirsten Gillibrand. But she's proven herself to be a serious legislator, former prosecutor. Um, you know, obviously, she was gained a lot of attention for her questioning of Kavanaugh during those confirmation hearings drank so much that you didn't remember what happened the night before or part of what happened. That's You're asking about, yeah, blackout. I don't know. Have you? Could you answer the question, Judge? I just, so you have, that's not happened. Is that your answer? Yeah, and I'm curious if you have. <laughs> I have no drinking problem, Judge. Yeah, nor do I. I'm keeping pretty cool when he and threw Exactly, back throwing it about, back at her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you're looking for someone who's tough and composed um, to be a foil to Trump, then she could be an option. One other thing that I noticed the, last night in Emancipation Hall was that there were a number of senators kind of coming through, one of whom was uh, Jeff Merkley. Now, mm-hmm. Jeff Merkley has been mentioned as a possible presidential candidate, but he also has to decide whether he wants to run for re-election because he's up in 2020. This is also Cory Booker's situation. I mean, again, I, we, I jested uh, at the beginning of the, the podcast that maybe we should just rename 2020 or 2019 pre-2020. <laughs> but there is some truth to that, right? Because if when you have such a big field, if you find out quickly that you're not going to crack double digits in any you know kind of significant state, then you can just go back and say, like, I think I'm just going to run for re-election. Right. And <laughs> Booker has the, the advantage, I guess you'd say, that his state actually changed the laws so that he can legally run for both things at the same time. And it should be said, both Booker and Merkley are not exactly top Republican targets. You know, they can kind of coast on their Senate reelection and focus on a presidential bid if that's what they want to do. Right. Well, Simone, thank you so much for, you know, kind of helping us sort of kind of go through the morass. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, including really interesting stories that I will not give away because we don't want to give our competitors any kind of edge from Simone Pathé on politics, no pressures, (laughs) visit RollCall.com and you can find us on Twitter at RollCall. 
and thank you for listening.